Recorded live from the WAYOFM.org studios in the fabulous Better Building here in Rochester, New York. Welcome to Transformation Thursday. I am Amy Stevens and my pronouns are she, her. And I'm Penny Sterling and my pronouns are she, her as well. And on today's Transformation Thursday, we're breaking new ground with our podcast today, our first international interview. We will be interviewing Liam Hackett. He is the founder of Ditch the Label, and he will be talking to us about a groundbreaking new survey that he did about transgender bullying online, and we'll get to that right after this music swell and fade out. Let's talk about change, Amy. Okay, let me see. It looks like I've got three quarters, a nickel, a Canadian loonie, and a few British tenors from when I was in London, because I'm an international comedian. No, not that change. Change is in transformation. The topic of Transformation Thursday. Oh, yeah, that. Well, we're doing this podcast to highlight how much things change and how quickly they do it in society today. Everything changes, and change isn't good or bad. It just is. The more we realize that change is just the natural progression of things, the better off we'll be. Now, let's talk about change. Didn't we just do that? No, no, not the last one. The first one, the coins, money, about how people can give us some of theirs so that we can continue talking about ours. Are you just trying to get people to go to our Patreon page to support this podcast so that we can continue our exploration of what it means to live in a rapidly changing world? Because although this is a labor of love, we do have expenses, and by going to TransformationThursday.com, they can help ensure that we can continue to be bringing this fun and insightful commentary on the world today, plus get exclusive patrons-only content. Um, if I say yes, can we get on to our next segment? Oh, God, I hope so. Okay, then. TransformationThursday.com. Also, can you break a 20 for me? Sure. I can get that to you in euros. Okay, now you're just showing off. In today's show, we're breaking new ground with our podcast today, our first international interview. Liam Hackett is the founder and CEO of Ditch the Label, one of the largest anti-bullying charities in the world. He has grown Ditch the Label into an organization that helps thousands of people every month. Liam sits on advisory boards across the third sector and government departments and has contributed to various academic and government reports at the UK, EU, and US level. Working across a multitude of countries and languages, Liam regularly speaks, debates, and contributes articles throughout the press, radio, and TV on a range of issues surrounding bullying, online abuse, equality, discrimination, gender, self-esteem, masculinity, digital technology, and young people. He regularly speaks publicly in places such as the White House, the United Nations, the European Parliament, and the Houses of Parliament, in addition to live public events with audiences up to 12,000 people. Now that all sounds impressive, Liam, but have you ever done a podcast with two transgender ladies? I haven't, no. Well, we want to see it on your LinkedIn profile after this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so did I. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> It'll work out perfectly. But first, can we talk a little bit about what got you to uh, Ditch Label? How did you end up starting this organization? Sure. Um, so I was bullied myself at school for about 10 years. And um, I was always the kid that would be walking around on my own at lunchtime. And I didn't really have very many friends and grew up quite lonely, actually. 
And my support network was actually quite small. Um, when I was around about 13, 14, MySpace started to become a thing. And um, I started to talk about my experiences of being bullied online. And um, I literally had hundreds of people message me to tell me that they had similar experiences. People are asking me for advice or giving me advice. And I very quickly learned at the age of 15 that A, bullying was a, a massive issue, but B, the internet could be a really powerful tool to connect some of those people together. So I came up with the idea of Digital Labour when I was 15. And long story short, I moved away at 18 to Brighton, which is the south coast of the UK, uh, to study at college and graduated when I was 21. And I went through what I now call the quarter life crisis <laughs> when I had absolutely no idea how I wanted to spend the rest of my life and what I wanted to do. But I'd always had this idea of Digital Labour in the background. And I really felt like something like Ditcher Labour was really needed and could do a lot of good in the world. Um, and so at 21, fresh out of college, I decided to just go for it. And now we are one of the largest anti-bullying charities in the world. And we reach thousands and thousands of young people every day. Um, so the growth has just been absolutely, absolutely staggering. Yeah, and Liam, sorry, sorry, Penny. So Liam, you also, not only are you doing this in the UK, but you're also doing it over here in the United States and around the world. So how, how did that growth happen? I guess it happened quite organically. Um, the beauty of the internet is the fact that you can deliver support without kind of traditional bricks and mortar. And um, you can, so we actually reach every country in the world apart from one country and the reason we don't reach it is because they don't even have the internet. So, I mean, that's okay. We'll forgive that. But we just organically grew and we started to reach young people in the US. And um, for us, it just felt like the natural move to localize some of what we do here in the UK to the US. But I mean, like I said, we get so many kids from across the world every day. So before we get too far into this, I was wondering if we could like set some groundwork here, like what is bullying and how prevalent is it in our society today? It's actually a really difficult question to answer because bullying by definition is so subjective. So what I might consider to be bullying, you might not, for example. And so we don't really like to overuse definitions too much because it can it can result upon people not talking about their experiences and not reaching out for support. But if you do want to have some degree of definition, we basically say it's behavior intended to cause harm, distress or hurt to another person. Usually it's sustained. Um, it is relatively quite prevalent. Um, we know that in the UK, for example, um, one in five have experienced it in the past year. Um, and one in two, so pretty much half of all young people have experienced it before their 18th birthday. Um, it is a massive issue. I think there's definitely a societal myth that it's just part of growing up. But we know that there's a very strong link between things like bullying and mental health, um, self-harm, suicide, self-esteem. You know, it's just like the impacts can be devastating. Yeah, I, I agree. And I really, one of the first things that I remember from Ditch the Label is your anti-bullying uh, survey, for lack of a better word, that you do in the UK. How many years has that been going on? Seven. 
feels so old. And, and, Seven years. <laughs> and and what in a, in a nutshell has 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 the level of bullying gotten better, gotten worse, mixed? What is the uh, what is the results of this survey? It's becoming increasingly digital and increasingly insidious. We know that the impacts are growing on mental health, and partly that's because, you know maybe like seven years ago, there, were, there was a higher degree of people who were just experiencing bullying offline. But now, increasingly, people are experiencing, experiencing it both online and offline, which only amplifies the impact that it has on their mental health. Um, so the nature of bullying changes constantly in line with technology and trends. Um, and I think what we found is with the political climate in the US and in the UK has influenced the rates of hate speech um, so rates of transphobia, homophobia, racism, xenophobia, etc. All of these things have been increasing over the past few years. And it's not just our data sets that show it. Um, there's a lot of data on kind of crime levels that indicate high levels of hate crimes and hate speech influenced by media, influenced by the political climate and the normalization of abuse. Yeah. And Liam, I want to go back to something there real quick, because one of the things I noticed in there is, with especially with kids and young people where a lot of your work seems I mean I remember about five years ago I got my 17 year old daughter her first phone and within two weeks she had downloaded all the apps she wanted she had accounts and one day I go to pick her up from school and she's crying on this on the sidewalk because she was bullied so how fast and how young are you seeing these things come into childhood all ages I mean our our remit is 12 plus but we know that this affects children even younger. Um, and th the danger is young people are now being abused around the dinner table, in their bedrooms, in the family car. And a lot of young people find it really difficult to open up about it to their parents, especially if it is online, because they're worried they're going to get in trouble. Um, they're worried that their parents are going to take the internet off them or they'll have to delete their social media accounts. So there's always kind of a fear of punitive measures for the people who are victimized. Um, but, you know, I forgot what the question was. <laughs> no, you're answering it perfectly. So you're, you're just talking about, you know, that young age and where that happens. And what I like in there, too, is like you said, kids are afraid to tell their parents. So what can parents do to help their kids? Because in this world, taking the phone away is not really a realistic option. So how do you how what do you suggest for parents to help their kids? I think the most important things for parents is to be open and to be really proactive in the ways in which they speak to their kids about how they engage with the internet, their experiences that they're having online and offline, and to just start talking about this as normal conversation. Um, I think sometimes parents can be quite scared of social media and apps and quite often don't talk about it in a kind of, um, how do you say it, kind of level way with young people. And that is what can alienate young people and discourage them from talking to their parents about these issues. But also it's important to look out for key warning signs. So for example, if your child is currently, is suddenly withdrawing, their appetite changes, um, their mood changes, um, you know, there's visible signs that they're upset, then clearly, you know, all of these are warning signs to strike a conversation with your child. Yeah. And what really I think one of the things that I like a lot about your organization is that you do all these different partnerships. You've got advocacy with you partnerships. Your your website looks like it uh, looks like a boutique fashion website more than anything else. And the infographics you have on there are are fantastic. Uh, and you have 
partnered with a bunch of people, including Brand Watches, and it was was Brand Watch. Uh, they were involved with the online bullying survey. Uh, they they were like the data crunchers for that. And they're also with this new survey, which is what we brought you on here, uh, which I think is the first of its kind, the uh, the Transphobia Online Survey. Yeah, I mean, it's funny that you say our website looks like a fashion brand. Um, that's something I'm really proud of. And I remember when I started Ditch the Label, um, we applied for our first ever grant and they said no. And they said we look too much like a fashion brand. And I was like, yeah, this is amazing. <laughs> this is the point. Yeah, because, you know, if you're kind of using the word bullying with a red circle and a line through it and it's comic sans and there's just text everywhere, it's just not a native experience for young people. And so they instantly feel alienated. So we always are very conscious about how we appear and what the kind of experience of accessing our support is like for young people but yeah kind of back onto your question um Bramwatch we've worked with for about five years now and this is our I think it's our third report that we've done with them oh no fourth so we've done stuff on hate speech we've done stuff on the constructs of masculinity sexism and mental health and this latest one is all on transphobia and Bramwatch are a really interesting partner for us because we do a lot of our research in-house, um, which relies on survey data, um, whereas Bramwatch are fantastic because they have unlimited access to public conversations on Twitter, forums, various different websites. And what we're able to do in partnership with Bramwatch is to really take big data, and we're talking millions of conversations, and analyze societal norms, attitudes, behaviors, as an observational point. So when you're doing that, there's less influence of social bias um, because you're observing something that's naturally going on anyway. Um, and it's absolutely fascinating what we're able to do with with the software that they've developed. Yeah, and one of the things in there is you also said there's you have so many things that you can look at between kids, millions of different trends and everything else. How did you end up coming about on to researching online transphobia though i think research is really important because bullying we see it as a social issue and um when we kind of when i started ditch a label and i looked what was already out there like i have to be honest none of it really struck me as being fresh or innovative or scientific and it was all kind of the same thing and the same approaches you know going into schools and telling kids not to bully and to be kind um for me as somebody who had been bullied for 10 years, it felt a little bit reductive. Um, and so I've always had a real hunger for innovation and using data and science to create social good. And it works, you know, we've done a lot of stuff with our data. Um, for example, you know, one of the biggest things that I'm personally most proud of is um, understanding the reasons why people bully in the first place. Um, because, you know, if you are victimized to bullying, quite often you consider yourself the problem. And, you know, often people who bully will target something unique about you. And so inevitably, young people constantly want to change who they are. They want to hide part of themselves. They want to change it. So we decided to flip that all on its head and actually analyze um, people who admit to perpetration of bullying behaviors. And we have done so much stuff on looking at the kind of lifestyle factors, their mental health, um, their attitudes, what their family breakdown looks like. And 
overwhelmingly, what we find is that people who bully um, are far more likely to be going through stressful and traumatic situations. They're far more likely to have lower self-esteem. They're actually more likely than people who are victimized to bullying to be having adverse mental health. Um, and when you start to understand perpetrators from that perspective, you can then start to think of, of, of bullying as a kind of effect with a causation and start to think about, well, okay, we know this issue is going on. We know that purely punitive measures don't always work. So what can we do to prevent bullying from happening in the first place? And the only way in which you can do that is by changing these situations, the environment and the circumstances of the people who are actually perpetrating. But before Ditch the Label, nobody ever thought of it that way. And people are still outraged when I talk about this because, you know, they're like, oh, do you want us to be compassionate towards bullies? And my attitude is, well, yeah, because they are going through difficult times and I don't ever endorse bullying behavior. I absolutely stand against it. But in order to actually really overcome it, we do need to understand why people have hate-based attitudes, why they're being so abusive and help them overcome those root issues. Yeah. And all of that has been done with data. No, and the interesting thing in there is because that's so counterintuitive to say, yeah, we need to be nice to the bullies as well. So that's, that's an interesting take. And I'm well, reminded of a story of my um, daughter who about five years ago when all this stuff started happening with the phone she was being bullied by somebody but come to find out that she's going her family's going through a divorce she's dealing with her own sexuality issues and she ended up with all these other things so now you you learn that and you start to look at that person in more continuity or not continuity but you have more compassion for him at that point so penny yeah, I, I just I, there's a difference between showing compassion and being nice. It's it's not allowing the behavior to continue. It's not condoning the behavior. It's just treating the person who's doing the behavior as a human being. It, yeah, it, absolutely. Yeah. So, Mike, my, my, let, let's go back into. So, why did you choose transphobia for this particular survey? So it's kind of more of a personal thing for me. Um, so I'm a very proud a visible ally um, to the trans community. And I'm very vocal about what I support. And um, I have been very vocal on social media over the past few years. And I myself have been targeted um, by right-wing extremists. And by that, I literally mean I've had thousands of abusive messages, tweets, emails. I've had my phone number leaked, my address leaked. I, we've had our funders contacted. We've had the most horrific things posted about me online. And um, I just kind of like when I was going through it, it, I had the realization that for a lot of trans people, this is their lived daily experience. This is what they get every single day, not only online, but offline too. And to be honest, it's outrageous. And I've kind of seen over the past few years how as I mentioned earlier, the political and the media climate is influencing the rates of all forms of hate speech, but especially transphobia. And I looked around to look to see if there was any evidence of an anecdote, and there wasn't. Um, and so I felt like there was a real gap in knowledge. And I felt that in order for to ditch the label to trailblaze positive change and to add more pressure onto social networks and government, we need to really be able to art articulate and quantify the extent to which transphobia exists. 
So it kind of, and I have a lot of friends who are trans and, you know, it just honestly, like it, it's, it's devastating when you hear the stories and you see the things that happen. And like, I'm of the belief that you just kind of let people live their lives and be who they want to be. And you, as, as, there's a bigger thing as well of kind of there's individual smaller online communities of people who generally are quite vulnerable, who self-radicalize. And um, we kind of see that they might enter that community with a, a slight transphobic bias. And then over a period of kind of three to six months, like are actually inciting violence and harm towards trans people. And you can see the pattern of online self-radicalization. And it's something that's really scary. But we needed evidence to show that that really happens. And that's why we, we did this research with Bramwatch. Yeah. So it was, it was over a, a period of, what, three years that you did the, uh, did the survey? How many? Yeah, how so much? We, Go ahead. Uh, we yeah, it was over three years. It was UK and US. We took ten million online conversations um, that were talking about that kind of referenced any keywords that we thought was either discussion of um, transphobia, trans rights, etc., or perpetration of transphobia. So there was ten million conversations that we actually analysed over that three-year period. Wow. And how, uh, how active were, did they just send you like annual, like monthly reports on this as it was going as, as a data was compiling, did it, was anything surprising to you? So it probably took about the whole project probably took us about eight months because the data was taken retrospectively. Um, so by that, I mean, we, we weren't analyzing it literally every day for three years. We kind of took a snapshot of that, those conversations from the three-year period. Um, and to be completely honest, when we had our first briefing session and saw the data, I almost cried. Um, I think everybody in the room was emotional because it's just when you actually see it right there in front of you and you see some of the horrific things that people post online and you see like incitement of violence and genocide and you see it and you see that somebody has actually posted that on Twitter or a forum or whatever and that's been live for three years like how can you not be outraged and how can you not feel emotional about that um, we actually got the permalinks of all of the abusive tweets that have been posted in those three years in our data sample and um, we turned to Twitter and we said, look, you need to know we're publishing this report. We found all of this still exists on your platform. You need to remove it before we publish this report. And they did. And they were really receptive. Um, but I mean, if you've read the report, like, I just, how can you read it without feeling outraged? You can't. Yeah. No. Oh, sorry. I just... Guys, I just want to say we're gonna we're gonna put a link to that uh, that report uh, on our in our every place that we can on social media, and uh, so if you want to see it, it's fascinating and it's also it's the infographics are uh, are, are wonderful and and heartbreaking at the same time. Yeah, and I, you bring up Twitter, and I think that's the one bright spot in this in recent months or year or last year, especially Penny and I are very active on Twitter, and I've had some run-ins with some extremists um, trying to misgender me, you know, call me out, and as soon as I report them, they seem to be dealing with them very effectively, so I see them as kind of the new role model for how, but then I see Facebook going totally the other way, so how do you combat that? 
Facebook is an interesting one, um, especially with the recent political advertising announcements. Um, it's difficult because we work with every major social network and there's only so much pressure we can put on them. And I would say from my entire experience of working with Twitter that they are far more receptive than some of the other social networks are. Um, so it's a very, very difficult one. Um, what's interesting as well, actually, and one of the limitations of this research is although we found 1.5 million transphobic posts over that three-year period, um, using the algorithms and the technology that we used, it is near impossible to measure the rates of kind of more nuanced forms of transphobia. So, you know, for example, if somebody's dead named or the given the wrong pronoun in a purposeful, undermining way, it's impossible for us to track that and to consider that as transphobia. Um, so actually, the rates of transphobia are far greater than what we have in this report. And I've been really open about the limitations. It's also the same with um, media headlines as well, because transphobic bias is often very, very nuanced in a lot of headlines. And it's very, very difficult using this methodology to track all of that. Um, so this research was very heavily influenced by keywords that were considered transphobic. And then we were able to analyze the sentiment, the wider content, the wider themes around those keywords. Um, so whilst it does give us landmark new data and evidence and shows to an extent the, the, how big of an issue this is, there are limitations in the fact that we do know that transphobia is a lot bigger than this. Yeah. The thing that I, that I, made, that I was interested in is uh, it looks like the, the most transphobic social media fight or, or the site where the most transphobia exists is on YouTube, which I thought was a little bit surprising. And I was just wondering why do you think that is? Yeah, I was a little bit surprised, if I'm honest. Um, my experience is in the UK, we have uh, there's a big forum called Mumsnet. I'm not mm -hmm. sure if you're familiar. I'm very familiar. Uh, and they're in their oh in their my. fight with mermaids. It's yeah. Um, well, I've been rated by Mumsnet, so I'm very proud to say um, <laughs> Mumsnet don't like me, um, which is fine because I don't really like Mumsnet either. But um, it's funny because from my experience and, you know, I'm cis, but I'm, as I said, a vocal ally and the abuse that I've received has been on Twitter and Mumsnet. So my own subjective experience kind of influenced me to believe that those two would come out pretty high, um, whereas they actually didn't. And it forces you to kind of see the, the bigger picture. And instead of those kind of hundreds or thousands of interactions that you've had, this is looking at literally millions of online conversations. Um, so, yeah, I was a little bit surprised about that. But again, um, you know, it is very difficult to track the kind of dead naming, um, people being doxxed, anything that's kind of more subtle and nuanced, which tends to be the kind of trend on on things like Twitter and Mumsnet. So you've got to consider that as well. Yeah. So uh, the, the other thing that, that was uh, startling to me was the the pyramid that you created. And you were getting you were getting comments throughout that pyramid uh how many how much actively hostile 
Uh, I mean, like there, there's the things like the dead naming, but there there are places and there are people who are out there saying, no, the best thing to do with them is to kill them? Yeah. Uh, stuff like that? I mean, really? I mean, I have not seen that. I know. Uh, that, but that, that there are people actually out there who are saying that. Yeah. So the, usually our reports, we do them as a, a PDF and you just download it. And this year we kind of sat down with Bramwatch and we were like, this is too sensitive and this is too raw and triggering. Um, so this year the report is actually an interactive microsite and things are actually hidden. You have to actually click to unhide them because the comments are that extreme. And so these are some of the comments that are actually hidden. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know how much, how graphic you want me to be because it is very triggering, but what you actually see in this pyramid of transphobia is this kind of radicalization where somebody may start at the bottom of the pyramid, which is kind of a general bias against uh, trans people. And then at the top of the pyramid is actual genocide um, of of trans people and below that is incitement to genocide and harm and violence. Um, it just is horrific when you see some of the things that people say and I, I, there's no other word, there's no other way of describing it. It really shows how serious this issue is. Um, and we already know there's a lot of research around online radicalization and extremism and terrorism. We know that people radicalize online and we know that that eventually in some people will convert to offline violence. And we're seeing that all the time. Um, and this really kind of articulates that in a really succinct way. But it's not it's not easy reading. No, it's not. What has the uh, reaction been? to the to the survey that you have seen it's you know what i came in to the office the next day and we were all just gobsmacked because we had fully prepared for the eventuality that we would have people calling the office we would have potentially people outside the office we'd have all these threads on mum's net we'd have all this hate we didn't get any of it um, actually, the response was hugely, hugely positive. Um, we've had so many people say thank you so much for doing this. Um, I've never seen data like this done before, and it helps so much to be able to articulate how big of an issue this is. Um, I think everybody is pretty much in agreement that this is horrific. Um, there's a lot of people who, who are kind of cis and don't aren't wouldn't identify as an ally and also don't know anybody who has transitioned um, or is transitioning who have kind of reached out and said, I didn't realize this was going on and I'm gobsmacked. And that was one of the main goals for this report was to really highlight um, to the general public how big of an issue this was. Because we already know, don't we? We already know how we know this goes on. We know what kind of things people are saying. But Joe Public on the street doesn't. Um, you know, we were on the kind of BBC News homepage all day, which had millions of impressions. And, um, you know, the story got picked up by Time. It got picked up by, um, I can't remember, but a lot of places picked this story up, mainstream media. And it was a fantastic response. I couldn't have wished for anything better, to be honest. Yeah. And so we're talking about all this stuff and the emotion that you're we're seeing here because we're FaceTiming with you. Unfortunately, most of our listeners aren't going to be able to see. But, um, you know, I've been very struck here when you're talking about the 
the emotion and how raw it is, you know, I had a little tear in my eye. I'm not afraid to admit it, but of course I did take my shot this morning too. So that might be part of it. But, you know, we talk about all these things. So how do you, how do you combat these things? So how do you, how do you work with people? How do you work with especially these communities where they're inciting genocide against people like me, how, how do we combat that? How do, how, do we, how do we reach out to them and say, hey, we're not the enemy? I think a big thing that we're doing at the moment is putting pressure on online platforms to take a tougher stance against transphobia um, because I don't think policies are as good as they should be. Um, I mean, Twitter's a perfect example. You know, as a result of this research, they've deleted and banned thousands of users, um, which is a huge positive step in the right direction. So I think first and foremost, we need to be continuing to put that pressure on social media platforms, which we are doing. Um, but also I think, and my hope is that this will be picked up on a government level. Um, we've shared it with a lot of our contacts across government because um, it's clear that hate, hate crimes towards trans people has been normalized and it isn't taken as seriously as it should be. And with this data, we've been able to actively show that this does result upon violence. Um, and our hope is that people will take this more seriously. Um, and I think there's also a, a big role in the media. So there's always media bias. We've seen it time and time again. And over the past few years, we've really seen in the US and in the UK how certain media outlets can influence the rates of transphobic belief patterns in a very nuanced, subtle way, just by the very language that they use or the stories that they report on. There is always a bias. And we need to, as people, as consumers, as allies, as trans people, we need to be calling those media outlets out. We need to be complaining to things like Ofcom, which we have here in the UK. Um, we have to all become activists and take this research and use it as our own toolkit. Um, and that's very much our ambition because, you know, at Digital Label, we're a small team. We're a team of like 15 people. There's only so much that we can do. Um, we need people to upstand and take a stand as well. And then the kind of final thing that I wanted to say is that you know, we are here to support anybody who has experienced hate, whether it's online or offline. Um, we actively support, I would probably say, hundreds, if not in the small thousands of, of trans kids every single year. Um, so we are absolutely available um, to, as a resource to tap into for help and support. We have um, fully trained mentors who can provide advice and support. We've got some really great resources. Um, so it's kind of a multi-faceted approach that requires much more than just it's a label. Well, that what you're doing is is phenomenal, unprecedented, and uh, at least in, for us, uh, we are incredibly grateful that you've done this, and we're incredibly grateful that you've taken some time out of your busy schedule to to talk with us about this. So, uh, Liam, thank you very much for appearing, and uh, good luck, and uh, I'm going to be following you. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks, Liam. You too. Bye-bye. 
If you'd like to support Transformation Thursday, you can do so in the following ways. On Facebook, like the Transformation Thursday podcast. To support us financially, you can do so by going to our Patreon page by typing www.transformationthursday.com into your browser of choice. On Spotify, Google Podcasts, and or Apple Podcasts, please subscribe to Transformation Thursday. And on Apple Podcasts, please give us a five-star rating and write us a short review. It's free and it really helps to get Transformation Thursday out to a broader audience. Finally, Transformation Thursday is copyrighted material, all rights reserved, 2019. Welcome back to Transformation Thursday. I am Amy Stevens, pronouns she, her. And I'm Penny Stevens and my pronouns. You're Penny Stevens now? Gosh. <laughs> I, I, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, you know, if I was, if I was Liam, I'd say I'm gobsmacked right now. Oh, that, that interview was fantastic. And there was so much to take out of it. But one of the things, you know, I was just thinking about this is it's the big thing I took away from that interview is this is a cisgender white guy. In his, what, late 20s? Yeah, late and, 20s. Or maybe early, I don't know, he's really well-preserved. He, and he is... <laughs> well, he's a doctorate. He's got a doctorate, so, well, he's, so yeah, he's, he, he's probably in his mid-30s. Yeah, okay, so mid-30s maybe, but this... But he has a passion for our community that I have not seen in in other people. Yeah. Or very few, I very should few. say. Very yeah. few. Because actually, as I said, that somebody's face just came to my mind. And but for him to be so dedicated to transgender bullying and everything that's going on online and the work that he has done with his organization is mind blowing. And I, I personally just thank him for that. Yeah. And I'm going to be in London in a couple of weeks. So I'm hoping that I can talk him into a pint or two. That'd be so, nice. Yeah. So maybe so. Yeah, that, that you'll, you'll if you do you take a picture and up and then we'll oh, post that'd it on be social great media. Idea. Yeah, I, and I was I was uh, I was amazed at uh, the the dedication and and his the the way he brought it the the way he is changing the way people look at uh, at, at advocacy organizations yeah. by making this thing a very. Uh, you know, not, hey, kids, stop bullying, but, you know, making it fashionable even to not be bullying, as I said. Plus, I also love the fact that he said the word gobsmacked twice unironically. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm chuffed that he did that, quite frankly. Yeah, and I think one of the things, you know, we usually release on Thursday because it is Transformation Thursday, but this episode is, if you're listening to it in real time, is going to be released actually on a Wednesday in honor of transgender, the day of transgender remembrance. Yeah, that's, that's it's a wonderful transgender thing. day of remembrance. Yeah, wait a minute, I'm the one that screws things up with I words, know. not you. Yeah, I know, but it's my turn tonight. Yeah, well, I think we're both ready to just like get on with our with our uh, with our with our lives right here. So. Uh, Thank you very much for listening to us. We've got a bunch of really interesting shows coming up, so please stay tuned for us. But for now, have a good night, Amy. Good night, Benny. <laughs>